Hey everyone, welcome back to the Futurist Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Lenehan. Today I'm joined by Ronan Farrell, founder of Wine Lab, Ireland's first wine on tap specialist. Wine Lab offers a range of over 60 high quality wines and cocktails packaged in one way kegs. In a bid to lower their carbon footprint, they've created their own closed loop recycling system in collaboration with One Circle, offering keg collection and recycling. Wine Lab, by its very nature, is a low waste way to enjoy wine. Eco-credentials aside though, Ronan really knows the stuff when it comes to the tipple. We talk about the virtues and pitfalls of orange and natural wines, how climate change is impacting growers, and what his favourite pours are this summer. I challenge you to get through this episode without developing a thirst, and if you do, check out their monthly subscription wine service, First Look Club. I'll leave the details in the description. As always, thank you so much for joining me. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Over to my conversation with Ronan. Ronan, we're here on a muggy, warm June evening talking about one of my favorite topics, wine. And you are the first, I think, person that I've had on to talk about wine. So you're going to be absolutely plagued with questions. I hope you're ready. You might need a coffee. <laughs> I'm ready. But let me start at the very beginning because your company, you were just telling me, started in the middle of a recession. And what we were talking about just before we went live was the fact that you know, business is crazy, especially when you own your own business. But one of the wonderful things about wine is that, you know, no matter what's going on, people have to take that moment in the day to just sit back and take it in. And wine is often a moment that people enjoy. So what inspired you back in those recession days to start Wine Lab? Initially, wine for me was somewhat accidental. Uh, I always wanted to play in a band when I was a kid. And I went to rock college when I finished school, wanted to play drums. And then halfway through second year, I just got this total crisis of confidence and said, I don't think I'm actually there. I don't think I'll ever be there. So I dropped out and I actually didn't have a, I was totally rudderless. I had no idea what I was going to do. My father had kind of taken early retirement when he was around 50 and he had started importing wine more as a hobby, like for him and his buddies. So he just said, look, roll in with me for a bit. You know, I'll pay you by the day that you work while you figure out what you're going to do with your life. So I started working with him. I had zero interest at the time and zero knowledge about wine. And I just totally fell into it and it was just completely like it just fulfilled a lot of my interests like I've always been interested in geography and history and, and cultural items and food and and those cup those those bits together just I, I suppose just opened this door for me where I just wanted to learn and, and consume as much both wine and knowledge as, as I could and uh but obviously we had different plans my, my dad wanted to he didn't want to like be so, be so busy and I was young and I wanted to push the business on so we, we sold it in 2010 to another importer here um, and then when I was working with them I was also studying winemaking with UC Davis in California by distance and it was around that time that I heard of this concept of wine on tap and so I spent about a year a year and a half researching is putting together uh, a plan for how you could work with wineries um, and I brought it to my employer at the time and it just didn't fit into it what their view of the wine world was. So we, we parted ways and I set up Wine Lab and that was July, 2013, the very depth of the recession. And it's funny, we were, we were saying this, it's like, it's been a nine year roller coaster of people forget about the Icelandic volcano, but the impact that had on tourism, that I think was, was that 2015 or 2016? And then obviously now laterally we've had COVID, the, the war in Ukraine, and uh, now this potential hyperinflation, but it just is what it is. All of those things are outside of your your control right so all you can do is you know react to those things as best you can and push on right 
And that's the thing. I wonder with a lot of companies who started, like sometimes the best companies and businesses start in that time of turmoil because it's kind of a feeling of like, okay, like this is bad. So why not take a chance? It's not like there's an awful lot at stake. And sometimes it gives you like a resilience. Like you've got a very pragmatic approach to, you know, the unpredictable and, and ups and downs. Do you think that's part of it? Like, do you think when something is formed at that kind of stage, you're just like, look, oh, this is business. We don't know, like we don't know any better, right? Like when we started Wine Lab, it was literally, I went to like a couple of buddies and like that, that four Fs, the friends, founders, family and fools who invest, like cobbled together what I could. And then the bank like wouldn't even match it. And like, I mean, they just they just didn't want to play ball. So we had to be really savvy with how we bootstrap the business. We had very little cash. I was funny actually, we like we started in July that year. Um, I was running out of cash like by Christmas that year. We'd installed maybe 10 or 12 accounts. It's very we a pretty different business model. We um we invest in every account that we open. So there's a huge capital expense of draft equipment that we put in. So I was sort of running out of road financially. And I got this sort of fear of, I, I knew there were some bigger companies in the market who were looking at what I was doing and they were sort of digging around going, oh, maybe we could do this. So I was thinking to myself, there's no way I'm going to be able to compete with a large business. So I thought I might pivot and become sort of a catalyst as opposed to a supplier. So instead of importing wine and supplying at the restaurants, I got this idea in my head that, well, maybe what we could do is enable other businesses to do this. And, and so I approached this chap that I'd met at a, a trade fair who seemed to be super knowledgeable about the draft end of our business. He'd been the technical manager for Bulmers and, and BOC Gas, who are the main sort of pub gas company in the country. And I approached him and told him what I was thinking of doing. And I literally just said, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. You're out of your mind. Um, because if you, if you show these guys how to do this, that you spend all this time researching, they'll just take the idea and you'll just be crushed. And he decided to invest in the business and became my business partner. And that, that was Richie. Um, and he's been the like the super pragmatic element to our business since then. I love that because that first interaction, like that was what that was the business partner you were getting. He was honest upfront. Oh, totally, yeah. Just like you absolute moron. Why would you do that? <laughs> Randomly enough, he lives like 300 meters away. Like that was an entirely coincidental. We'd no idea either. So yeah, that was pretty funny. And he 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 obviously brought a whole new aspect of the business where, where my background was in wine and I had studied obviously winemaking and knew how to taste and knew how to put wine together he understood that missing bit of like how do we make sure that the wine gets from the keg to the customer's glass in the best possible way and, and from there we've developed a whole sort of bespoke service where we essentially a design service for our customers where we can you know work to whatever kind of aesthetic that they need. Well, maybe for those listening who haven't interacted with Wine Lab and haven't heard of it, can you explain the, the, the TAP model and how it's so different, like in every way, really, mm. to, to the normal bottle service? Yeah, yeah. So we, we, um, we ship our wine in a um, recyclable keg called a key keg. So the concept of putting wine into a barrel predates the glass bottle. Historically, up until the 1800s, all wine and all beverages were shipped in barrels. Um, I when I talk to people in the trade, when I do um, staff trainings, I always hold up a wine bottle and go, what is this? And people go, oh, it's a bottle. And I go, yeah, but what's the use case for this? And like, it's for storing the wine in. No, it's actually, it's the transportation vessel. And when you think about it, something that weighs half a kilogram and breaks when you drop it on the floor is pretty much the worst um, the worst transportation vessel you could ever think of. So essentially what we're doing is going back to the way beverages were transported by putting them into larger containers. 
the reality is in, in a restaurant or bar or hotel environment, 80, 90% of wine is sold by the glass anyway. We don't even see the bottle. The bottle really, is it said it's, it's a poor transportation vessel that over time marketers have put lovely labels and aesthetics on, but ultimately it's just there to move the wine from point A to point B. So that was our sort of starting point of, is there a more efficient way to do this? It's more um, sustainable. So what I found from looking into key kegs were that we could uh, reduce our sort of our dry goods, the boring stuff, the dry goods and the transport costs, we could reduce them by about 20 to 30%, depending on where we we're shipping from. I suppose what you guess as a, consumer when you go into a restaurant that has wine on tap is it guaranteed the wine's always going to be fresh it can't oxidize because it's a hermetic it's a sealed environment um it's more sustainable in that we're close to 45 50 percent of a reduction in carbon footprint versus a traditional gas bottle um and we're able to use less preservatives I mean, we can use less sulfur dioxide in wine because again it's hermetic no air can get in um so yeah, it's, it's just, it's allowed us, and it's allowed our customers as well to, to maybe experiment with some wines that they wouldn't feel comfortable putting on by the glass in case, you know, where's the next customer going to come from who wants to try a Lambrusco by the glass, you know? Um, so, yeah. It's so, it's so interesting at the moment. There's so many things that I'm coming across where it's like all of these environmental eureka moments are actually really old ideas that over the mm. years we went away from when we've come back and that's so interesting about the wine bottles. I mean, the kegs make so much more sense environmentally in terms of the mm -hmm. quality. So, because I, I was thinking initially, is it a bit of a hard sell to say, you know, wines in, in a keg, but it, 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 that's the way it was. That is so fascinating. So in terms then of you guys go into restaurants, right? And like you said, you invest and you reinstate, and I've seen um, you in um, Spreza Tour, that, that was the yes. first time that I came across you. And it's like visually amazing to see mm -hmm. the setup. Can you like give people um, a little uh, illustration of what it's like when you when you install? Yeah, well, in Spreza Tour is, is a good example. It's kind of a, a statement piece for their restaurants. So in, in that example, we have essentially a single copper pipe per wine. And I think there's 18 wines maybe that we have, 18 or 20 wines, and they actually come in across on the inside of the ceiling. So they're completely exposed to so the part of the architecture of the restaurant. So it's quite dramatic and it's quite theatrical. And I think that's that's some of the, like in the early days of Wine Lab, they were some of the concerns people had. They go, I would like to present the bottle of wine at the table. I like, you know, people like the theater of hearing a cork go And my answer to that cork noise was always, you know, that noise is a guarantee as much as like, it's a guarantee of romanticism. It's also a guarantee that there's a likelihood that the wine inside isn't going to be stable, right? You know, like when I started in the trade uh, 20 years ago, they used to say one bottle per case of 12 was corked or, or had, a, had a faulty cork, right? And there's probably no other trade in the world that would accept those kind of parameters. Imagine if 8% of meat was rancid or, or whatever, do you know? But it, it, that's that's maybe a conversation for a few minutes, but the sort of the emotive, uh, the emotive element of wine versus the practical end of it. But... Um, it's funny, I, I took a lot of learnings from trying to introduce screw cap in the early 2000s into the trade where all we had to do as a trade was tell people what the bona fides were. And by sort of pointing out this screw cap, it may not have the like aesthetic, like the pleasing aesthetics of, you know, a cork coming out, but it's a guarantee from the winemaker that the wine inside is going to be delivered exactly as they intended. And that's very much what we can do with wine on tap. And it's, a lot of it is just reconstructing that conversation to go like, well, you know, Again, what's the use of a cork? And you go, well, it's there to stop the air getting in. Does it do a good job? Yeah, it does a kind of good job, but not a great job sometimes. So is there a better alternative, right? And I think that's, 
I think that's something I suppose for for our generation as well is is more that lack of convention that perhaps our parents and grandparents had, you know, where everything was based on conventions. Well, this is the way we've always done it. Ergo, this is the way it's done, you know. So in terms of your your customer then and your consumers, do you find it's younger people who are less attached to having, you know, a traditional experience with a bottle of wine? I mean, there's been so many changes in the wine industry, I feel like in the last few years where people are trying natural wines, you mentioned orange mm-hmm. wine there and, you know, different sparklings. Do you think it's a generational thing that, you know, we're not just, att- we're not so attached to the bottle and cork and, and more open-minded? Or do you find that people across the board, once they try it, they're like, oh, this is actually amazing? I think that that's part of it. It's it's getting past that first barrier of like, that's not what I'm expecting. And um, certainly when we started, you know, and we had, you know, single digit accounts, it was, it was, it was a challenge because people didn't have a reference point to go. They'd A, have never seen it and B, had never tasted it. But even before that, going to winemakers initially, with my protocol that I'd written to kind of go, hey, I love your wine. Can we put it into a keg? And they're going, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, but uh, so there was a long journey there for a couple of years. But thankfully now, you know, nine years in and, and you know, a good few hundred accounts on our tap. Certainly in Ireland, it's very well established. We would have one of the highest per capita rates of like wine on tap anywhere in the world now, because it's a small market and, and we, we've got reasonably good um, penetration. And But yeah, I think, I think there's, there's, a, there's probably the, the convention does you know as we identified there's the convention piece or the change of convention piece for younger customers but i think there's also just a wider um acceptance of just newness in general in, in hospitality and what we've really seen post-covid as well is that the amount of inquiries we've had from businesses who want to improve sort of their their green credentials and it's not just greenwashing they just go look we we really feel that we need to start making some moves in this way so can you help us and that's a you know that's a huge part of what we can do because we're able to offer such a, a profound reduction in carbon footprint because we created our own closed loop recycling system ourselves in 2019. So we have the capability to collect every single keg we deliver in Ireland. We bring it back to our warehouse, we crush it and bail it manually, and then it goes back to the manufacturer in the Netherlands. The keg is 100% recyclable, but it's designed to be 81% circular. So if we can collect as many kegs as we put out, we can safely say that in Ireland, you know, four fifths of them are, are being re, are turned into new kegs. And with that kind of number, you're talking close to 50% reduction in, in carbon footprint. And that's compelling to people. It's very hard to argue against that. And you just go, I don't love, I don't love how it looks. Like, well, you know, tough, <laughs> like who cares? You know, it isn't surely the enjoyment of what's in the glass, the most important thing. And then if you can also drink it, knowing that there's, there's a, you know, a compelling um, sustainability case there too. and I love the idea of the freedom to be a little bit more experimental with what you drink Mm. and having that fun and interest and you know sometimes you're out for dinner and you'll have you know four red drinkers and one white drinker and obviously it's a bottle of red there's so much freedom that comes with pouring by the glass and such Mm. little waste you know it's it to me it's just an absolute no-brainer so let's talk about the wine what are how many are you are you importing at the moment and what are your criteria for choosing wines yeah we've i think we've got 65 wines and keg we made a couple hundred that we do in bottle as well and that's sort of further up the list like there there's there are people there are occasions and there are certain wines that just have to be in a bottle for for one of those above reasons but as i said earlier probably 80 percent of wine sold in in restaurants hotels and bars is, is by the glass 
but we always look for wines that are lower intervention. So wines that are organically grown and, and like organic certification isn't important to me at all. It's, you know, there's a lot of racketeering within, within that space. Just the fact that someone is committed to growing as sustainably as they can. And then we work with winemakers who are sort of more hands-off or lighter touch, who are less, less inclined to manipulate in the winery, more inclined to let quality of their fruit shine through. And certainly within keg it's, it's it's a slightly different environment to a bottle in terms of how how wine behaves at a, at a chemical level so we look for wines that have got high natural acidity lots of freshness lots of primary aromas because that's the amazing thing about a completely hermetic environment or a sealed environment is all of those lovely volatile aromas those things you know when you first pour a glass of wine and it's it's beautifully aromatic and you're just like wow it just strikes you it preserves that through every single glass of the keg so you know the 114 glasses and they all smell identical there's no degradation as you go um so we look for wines that are yeah very lively we don't really work with many wines that have oak um and wines that are bright and fresh and i want people to have you know two or three glasses to enjoy it as you said earlier you know muggy evening or when things are stressful it's nice to have glass of wine like wine's just a tonic right it's just you know it's gastronomic it's delicious it's evocative but it's also just pleasantly inebriating too do you know it just like it, <laughs> it helps you chat and whatever it's just yeah it's great what are some of your favorite ones at the moment if people are going to finish this and they'll have a serious thirst on them i know mm. what ones would you recommend what are like your i mean we're in high summer now and this is going to come out during summertime so if someone comes across you in a restaurant or orders online what are some of your like favorites i'm sure they're like your children and it's hard to pick but do you have any recommendations <laughs> yeah well like like the the area i suppose i've always had a keen interest in, in wines from spain but probably the the region that has the holds the most exciting for me at the moment is Catalonia. I said that area around Barcelona, north and west of Barcelona. And there's, we work with a couple of uh, winemakers there. And it's amazing. There's just this, it's almost like the La Movida movement that happened in Madrid, um, that, that food movement in, in the sort of the 60s, the cultural movement. There's something happening in Catalonia as well with these just incredible young winemakers who went to technical colleges. They've had the most up-to-date training they understand the science, but then they also have all of the historical cultural context as well from their parents and their grandparents of these ancient vineyards that, that only, you know, where they grow local varieties and they're combining the two. And I think always the greatest wines are when you've got that understanding of not just the art, but the science as well. Um, and you just have the perfect melting pot there of just great climate, amazing old great material and really, really smart, savvy winemakers, grape growers. Um, so like we do a trade bath, which is a local red grape from Conca de Barrera. We do, we do an orange, a white and a red from uh, a winery called Cerro Frizach in, in Terra Alta. Um, they're just amazing, like really light reds, super juicy and fruity, low alcohol and whites that have a little bit of contact. And uh, yeah, they're great. Talk to me about orange wines because I feel like mm. I can't go onto Instagram without seeing an orange wine. It's become so popular. So can you explain what is an orange wine? Why is it having this like fantastic moment right now? Yeah, it's it's uh, so orange wine is so essentially when you make white wine, you take uh, white grapes and you crush them and you remove the skins straight away and then just the juice from it. So when you're making red wine, you take red grapes, you crush them and you generally leave the skins in contact and the skins impart tannin, which is the kind of dryness in your mouth, and impart flavor and anthocyanin and color and the whole lot. An orange wine is essentially making a 
kind of a red wine out of white grapes where you crush the grapes, the white grapes, but you leave the skins in contact. And I suppose the, the difficult part for people to understand is that people think of orange wine in a singular term, like it's a style of wine. It's a whole color. So you've got to think of it in the same terms as white wine or red wine, ranging from a tiny bit of skin contact where it's almost imperceptible. It might just give you some minerality or pithiness up to a whole load of skin contact and maybe some oxidation where air gets in. And then you have these like giant, like contemplative tannic wines as well. And there's everything in between. So it's a big complex um, space. The reason it's, it's become popular, I suppose, is it, it's kind of being part of the, the entry card of natural wine, that kind of movement of the last, say, five years, 10 years. But historically, it's got really deep context when you go back to like, say, Georgia, when you go back, when even what I mentioned Catalonia there, like in, in Terra Alta, the guy we work with, he makes a number of different what we call orange wines. If you said the word orange wine to him, he'd slap you in the side of the head and call you a hipster because it's cultural there. It's called brisat, and it's the way they've always made white wine. They've always just made it with skin contact. So for him, he's just like, who are these people like running around? And you, you mentioned there about natural wines. That's another, you know, whole genre that is really having a moment. Can you tell people a little bit about the difference? And, you know, from what I understand, there's a really big spectrum between natural wines that are really good quality um, and then ones that are maybe not so much. Maybe not. Yeah. And it's all you've got to do is like go on Instagram and you know, within a few minutes, you just search and you'll find many deep conversations about it. And I've, I've been involved in a couple. And so essentially natural wine conceptually, it's a very ill-defined space, but conceptually it's, it's people who grow grapes organically and tend to not do a whole lot in the winery, right? So they, they won't, maybe they won't add sulfur, uh, they won't filter, they won't find, they'll just let the fermentation find its way naturally. They won't add like a cultured yeast, they'll let you know, the natural yeast in the cellar or on the grape skins do its business. So at its best, uh, they're super evocative, really complex and they're very enjoyable wines. At their worst, they're a bacterial mess. Um, and a lot of them are a bacterial mess. And I work with a lot of natural or low intervention winemakers but there's definitely a disconnect between people who, as I said, understand the science as well as the art and people who take a pure philosophical bent on this where they go, I'm not adding anything. I'm not doing anything. I'm not touching anything. And it's funny. I, I remember reading a kind of a contrarian viewpoint on this a couple of years ago from a winemaker in California called Abe Scherner. And he's, he's kind of held up as this paragon of natural winemaking in, in California. But he had this really interesting point where he said, you know, choosing to do nothing has as much of a footprint as choosing to like have adjuncts or put it into oak because that has just, for instance, if you choose to do nothing and add no sulfur, you're probably gonna end up with a wine that has higher volatile acid or might have some bacterial notes in it. And that has a huge marker on the, on the end product, right? Just as much as going, I'm gonna add just enough sulfur to make sure there's, there's no bacterial uh, markers and I might use a little bit of oak to give it some structure. They are both paths you can go. So, Sort of defining one as a bit more um, as a bit more holier or or sort of wholesome than the other is is kind of a nonsense to me anyway. I just for me, I just wanted to taste amazing and be clean. Uh, I don't have a lot of tolerance for wines that are that are faulty, and um, because it's easy to it's relative. I shouldn't say it's easy. It's relatively easy to remove to inoculate against faults just by using a little bit of sulfur. And there's a lot of I suppose there's a lot of 
there's a lot of talk about sulfur and its use in wine and it's funny like you know the levels to prevent microbial spoilage in sulfur are so low that it's it's negligible the funny thing is what we should probably be talking about is is copper um like copper is used pretty freely in in um in viticulture especially in areas of europe where you've got you've got high humidity but copper is a heavy metal it accumulates in the ground and it accumulates in our bodies as we consume it whereas sulfur which is sort of considered the, the beast of the moment is an organic compound that doesn't accumulate you know it's like so many things in this kind of clean space that like you know in a in a bid to be clean and as you said like do nothing and leave things natural actually sometimes that's not the best option and i love what you mentioned there about low intervention so mm. like you said having a clean wine fascinating about copper I didn't realize that but like using sulfur as a scapegoat when actually there's other things to look for that's fascinating and great for people to know because I think you know it's great that people are excited about natural wines in this whole new genre but really important for you to be careful and to just keep an eye out and, and to go for the ones that are high quality uh, that that's mm. fascinating I'd love to ask you you mentioned there about climate and you know that's one of the things that we always think about when we think about these beautiful you know ancient vineyards all over the world they are so dependent on their climate mm. and there's been a lot of talk about different vineyards that are really struggling because there's been a vast change in their climate and how different growers are having to adapt or how some you know different types of um vines just aren't growing anymore have you heard anything about that on your travels or when you're interacting with growers and what's your take on it I've seen it, Joe, um, just this year. I was in California in March and ordinarily in, rain is pretty easy to predict in, in Napa and Sonoma. They usually get their winter rain October, November each year. And then in February, they get a sort of an early spring rainfall. And there was no rain in February this year when I was there. They were terrified. This was middle of March and they were going, we don't expect we'll see rain till October, November now. And what that means, you're driving around with a vineyard manager through Sutter Napa and he's pointing out vineyards going, they're in trouble, they're in trouble. These guys might be okay, they're fine, these guys are in trouble. You literally have situations, and that's unique to California anyway, with their long, long sort of, their, their long stature drought, but also the way vineyards work there. You can have a vineyard that I get of eight growers who are leasing space in that vineyard and you've got one well and you have this like standoff scenario where people are kind of going, waiting to see who's gonna blink first. The one thing I've, it's really come home to me, I've traveled a little bit this year into, into Europe and as I said there, California, we talk a lot about climate change and I think that language just has to, has, it has to stop. We have got to talk about climate crisis because this idea of like, I think by talking about like one and a half degrees as this tolerance almost in the future, it's removing people from how severe the scenario is. We're in the climate crisis right now there's no doubt in my mind, having visited many vineyards this year, everybody is talking about completely unpredictable weather patterns, stuff they've never seen before, um, you know, a lack of rainfall, and then the ground is dry. So when they do get rainfall, this, you know, the water just causes, causes destruction. And it's, it's scary. There's no doubt. Um, I, would, I would say that every single winemaker we work with has, in the last year, reported to us, like, weird and difficult weather like we've our, our our grower in Chablis Eleanor Moreau in 2020 lost 90 percent of our harvest like just bang gone you know you can't and it's not that's not sustainable you know so it's something we see everywhere um yeah it's you know it's really it's so sad to hear and you know sometimes it takes things 
you know, it takes something to hit home with people before it starts to feel real. So it might be a case that somebody loses their favorite wine before they uh they realize that that climate is changing. And honestly, I could talk to you all day and I have never wanted a glass of wine more. But before we finish up, what are your plans for the future? And for people listening who maybe want to experiment, would you suggest they go to your website? Should they head to a restaurant? What do you mm. what would you say? So we have a few new projects coming this year. So we have a couple of we have a couple of retail sites where you can go in and, and pay a deposit for a bottle and take it home and try wine on tap. We have a pilot in that vein happening with a large retailer within the next couple of months, which is pretty exciting. That's sort of been a big focus for us now. Um, and uh, yeah, but for to come across our wines, it's, you know, if you're Dublin based, there's there's lots of, so a lot of choice. Like there's, a, there's a wine bar in Drury Street, Calamy Austin. They have maybe 18 wines, as I mentioned, say Sprezzatura, but we'd work with, you know, a lot of places in Belfast, Galway, Cork. Uh, it's a pretty big list. Um, in terms of places you can buy to take away, there's Swans on the Green and Nace, Clontarf Wines on the north side, um, Dollard & Co. on the South Keys. They're all places where you can pay a deposit and take a bottle home. And I like that idea. It's very tactile. It's something I remember being a kid and going to holidays in France and they used to have this thing called Sanke Etoile, five star. And you could bring in any container you wanted into the grocery store and you'd weigh it. And then you'd pay by weight on wine from a tap in the wall um and that's yeah i suppose starting wine lab that was a sort of a full circle moment for me brought back those memories of being a kid and that kind of that market feel that sort of tactile feel i like that i think that's there's something compelling in there and we hope to do a lot in that space in the next year or two i cannot congratulate you enough for what you're doing it is just such a gorgeous business and so forward-thinking and pioneering and I just commend you for having the courage to go out and do it on your own and for seeing that it would be such a success it's absolutely amazing definitely gonna go and have a glass of wine after that thank you so much for the chat Ron. I really appreciate it no doubt lovely thanks so much